This what? is your house for me. That's for me? Yeah, for you and Hillary. Sorry. Oh, Hold wow. on, we got company. Oh, hey. Here, here, this is yours. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Got your butt You're all welcome. over it. Hey, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Let me see here. We got a little housewarming gift. Oh, it's a pepper plant, dude. Everyone's giving Andy f- fruits and veggies. Everybody knows I like spicy things, yeah. too, oh, the, dude. It's called the macho pepper. The macho pepper. You do know me very well. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome, man. Thank you, guys. Of course. Will you be that. able to ride home with it? Um... If not, just leave it and I'll drive it over. Maybe not, but, uh, yeah. I also, last week when I left here, I had my first major wipeout on the fucking scooter. Talk about fail. We're talking about failures this week. I had a major fail. Like, I just, I fucked up. Like, there's this one section, there were like two cars coming. Normally, I ride on the street when there's no cars coming at night, you know, because it's smoother. Because the sidewalks are like a nightmare. And there was like one car behind me, so I was feeling rushed. And there was another car coming, so I was like, I got to cut over to the sidewalk really quick. And there was like, you know, most, you can kind of just, you go up because it's smooth. And there was one section, I was just rushing, and I looked, and it looked like it was smooth. Yeah. And like, probably half a foot away from it, I looked back down, I was like, that's a fucking curb. Yeah. Oh. And I just smacked the Ooh. curb, full speed, flipped off the, the scooter. Scooter hit me in the shit. My shin, I thought I fractured my shin. I hit so hard. I know how to fall though, so I rolled, you know, but it was like, either the scooter or the curb, something smashed my shin bad and my knee. My shin was instantly black. Like, I pulled my pant leg up, and it was already black. That's how bad it was. And it was bleeding. And it was, like, such a bad wipeout that both of the cars stopped. And were like, are you okay? Like, they were like, holy fuck, man. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know? And I was like, I think I can make it home, you know? And, yeah, it's still, like, you can still see the remnants of it all there. But, yeah, so... Maybe I'll, you know, just Take focus on the riding, you know. Yeah, all right. Well, I'll, I'll bring it by. I'll, sw- or I'll swing by, dude. I got, I'm, I got my car, so. Okay. You know. Then I'll keep it out. So For sure. We'll get some sun. Thank you, though. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Hi, Ryan. Bye, Ryan. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you. It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Brian Saunders. And... Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. And we come on here, we have it out. It's episode 113. And the topic is failure. Last week, I was sort of blessed with a failure double bill, although I didn't realize it at the time, but I saw... Kathleen Collins' Losing Ground, ostensibly a film about 
uh, a failed marriage, and I came home and I and I watched Waterloo, starring Rod Steiger. And while I was watching Waterloo, it struck me. Failure. That's what I wanted to talk about. One of the great themes, perhaps, in American film and literature. Um, I would argue, stealing from William Gaddis, but nevertheless. And you know, that's a very, now that you put it that way, it's a very prophetic I was gonna say. double yes. bill you watch <laughs> for what we programmed tonight. Yes. Not to I get was, ahead of ourselves. Yes, yes. I was going to say that, yeah, that double feature actually was uh, prophetic in many ways. It sort of predicted both uh, the sort of personal and interpersonal and like micro level of failure and uh, a much larger lev level of failure, a sort of historical uh, war type level of failure, right? So anyway, uh, let's get into it. Andy, you had the earlier of the two films. Why don't you tell us about the failure uh, you brought today? Well, I, you know, sort of um, took a page from your book uh, when we were discussing Waterloo. Um, and I'm a big fan of that movie, um, not just because of Rod Steiger, but but I think it's a, an excellent epic portrayal of of one of France's uh, biggest military blunders, you know, one of their, their biggest military failures. The vainglory of command. We've seen it before. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So I thought, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's just build on that. Let's stick in there and let's take a look at another massive French military failure, a, a huge debacle, a huge clusterfuck that would have, uh, like Waterloo, tremendous and arguably m greater implications for, for history and, and, and not just for France, but, but for, for a lot of other countries, a lot of other people. That would be the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, which was... Uh, a film made, uh, well, the director made a film about the battle in 1992, and the director is a veteran of that horrific, uh, horrific battle. That is Pierre Schundorfer. Now, just to provide a little bit of context, uh, historically speaking, for our listeners who aren't you know, like me, a, a sort of Sunday morning garage historian. <laughs> the Battle of Dien Bien Phu uh, was the climactic conclusion of France's colonial aspirations over Indochina, uh, as they called it, but the country of Vietnam. Uh, this took place in 1954. Really, the battle sort of took place over, you know, the end of 1953 and half of 1954. But our film is concerned mostly with the, the battle proper, which took place in 1954. This was the French's um, grand strategy for drawing out the Viet Minh, drawing out the, the, the North Vietnamese army into a... They were looking for a pitched battle, so they had this great idea to, to set up a military base, a, a fortress. It was sort of called the hedgehog strategy. And their goal was to draw the Viet Minh to this base 
and then pulverize them with all of their, you know, modern, uh, expensive, American-funded military technology, planes, artillery, tanks. So the goal was to sort of put troops in a area and let the Vietnamese come to them and wipe them out. Well, the strategy worked. They drew the Viet Minh in, but it didn't quite go according to plan, and the Viet Minh laid siege to them and basically eliminated the entire garrison. It was such a dramatic uh, defeat for the French that basically the next day they went into peace negotiations and said, all right, that's it, we're out. We're leaving Vietnam, we're leaving Indochina, as they called it, and this is when the Geneva Conference took place that would divide Vietnam into the North and the South. This was all as a result of this battle, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And we'll get into a lot more of the, the details, I think, when we, when we discuss the film, because it is basically a blow-by-blow docudrama of those events. And it's very important to point out that Pierre Schundorfer was, as I mentioned, a veteran of this battle. He was there on the ground as a French military cameraman. He was filming footage of the battle. He parachuted in during this nightmarish, uh, 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 bloody, horrible, horrible conflict. And he was captured with what remained of the French colonial forces at the end of this battle and would spend uh, several years in captivity before he was eventually repatriated uh, back to France. In many respects for Schundorfer, this event has been sort of an obsession of his and, and largely as well like Vietnam, this conflict. Uh, because if you look at his career, like he would time and again return to Vietnam. Uh, of course, he made a great film about the French, um, you know, involvement in Vietnam called the 317th Platoon. I think he made that in 66, I want to say, something like that. Uh, a year later, he would go back, this time invited by the Americans to make a documentary, the Anderson Platoon. 1967. Now, of course, looking at America's grand failure in Vietnam. That would go on to win him an Academy Award. Um, there's another movie I mentioned to you guys off the pod that I watched from 1960, uh, 1977 called The Drummer Crab, which is French naval officers reminiscing about a guy. And there are huge sections of that film that take place during the French colonial, you know, uh, involvement in Vietnam. And then in 1992, some 50 years almost later, he sort of went back to revisit his trauma, I guess you could say, um, and, and go to the place, the specific place. Because he'd always been dealing with it indirectly, but now he's going back to the battle that he was involved in. And, you know, um, I think it's a really interesting film when you take all of that into account, because I will say, you know, and again, we'll, we'll, I don't want to get too stuck here in the intro on this, but like, I thought this was a really stunning film, uh, a very interesting film, but there are some people who are not big fans of it uh, because of its construction, and we're going to get into that specific instruction. But I think 
that this is clearly the you know a construction that was put together by him to sort of um to again like sort of go back through his own traumas and the traumas of France and the traumas of Vietnam because the film has this sort of like postscript that seems to directly address that this is his kind of like attempt to 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 mend fences so to speak you know um, man, I think it's a it's a beautiful film. It's very clearly a cameraman's film, if you think about it in those terms. I mean, that's how he got his start. Um, and yeah, it is uh, one big, massive fuck-up for the French. So yeah, um, that is Dien Bien Phu. Thank you very much. Ryan, why don't you tell us about your film? I think it's funny that Andy didn't mention the most like singularly appealing element of Dien Bien Phu, which is that it stars Donald Pleasance uh, yes. in an insane role. But so we'll, we will, of course, talk about uh, Mr. Donald later in the episode. But we've got we've got another guy that we uh, we need to talk about today, <laughs> and that's that's Mr. Cave. Zahedi. Now, before I talk to you all about Cave, um, you know, when I was thinking about this prompt and I was thinking about failure, I was taking a page from uh, Gaddis's book, as Marsh referenced. I was thinking about Gaddis's writings on failure, and I, you know, one of the funny things about him was that he he taught a course on failure and had a whole syllabus to go along with it. And I thought, well, I should revisit that list and see if that kind of triggers any inspiration or gets me thinking about failure in a different way. And it still just pointed me back to sort of my guide star of what my initial reaction was when Marsh pitched the topic. And I was thinking about the idea of using one's personal failures and shortcomings and mistakes and using art as a way of interacting with that, whether that be through the form of confessional, radical honesty, or just looking back at things that you would have interpreted as fuck-ups and instead making art out of it, and using that as your grounds for inspiration for your films. And that led me to Kaveh Sahedi, who has spent the past couple decades doing that exact thing with his filmmaking. So the film I ended up going with is I Am a Sex Addict from 2005, directed by Kaveh Sahedi. So now, for those who aren't familiar with Kaveh, Kaveh is a filmmaker who's essentially been filming himself for the past couple decades. His first feature, I think, came out sometime in the 90s, and he's currently working on a TV show that has been a multi-year project called The Show About the Show, where every episode of the show is a behind-the-scenes of the episode that preceded it. And... With that in mind, you can imagine what his films might kind of be like. They're, of course, extremely honed in on his personality, his lived experience, and it's all presented through the guise of pure honesty, right? He hides nothing about himself. It's He's confessing to the point of making everyone <laughs> extremely uncomfortable. And I am a sect addict specifically uh, to riff on <laughs> some language Andy used is sort of Kaveh's colonial aspirations of prostitutes in his words for what would more modernly be referred to as sex workers. This film traces his journey on, this is moments before Kaveh is about to be married, 
for the third time. He is giving this confessional to the audience and describing his long tribulations through his sex addiction and his obsession with prostitutes for well over 20 years, I believe, uh, by the time he like actually made this film. So this film then details his two failed marriages leading up to his third that he hopes will be a great success, and along with a great deal of other girlfriends and partners that things didn't really totally work out because of some of the decisions Kaveh has made. And instead of wallowing this, Kaveh decides to, why don't I just share all of this with the world and you know say it straight into the camera. So this film has uh, very much a do-it-yourself aesthetic. Kaveh shot this on DV over multiple years. I've found conflicting reports for how long he was shooting this thing. The main thing I've read was that he shot it over a period of four years, but I've read as upwards of 15 because he lost a bunch of footage and had an apartment destroyed and, you know, lots of Kaveh-esque stories about that. But the film essentially follows a linear structure where he is telling us about his first marriage leading up to where he is now, and he goes through all of his attempts at overcoming these repressed feelings he has for sex workers, his own sexual energies, and he treats it as a series of lessons and attempts that he go through that all subsequently failed. It's, you know, it, he's an interesting guy. I, I watched one other film of his uh, before watching this one called In the Bathtub of the World, which is a video diary he did where he shot some footage every single day and then made a feature out of it. You really get to know Mandy in that one and you get to know Kaveh's family. And I think all these films, as I've experienced them, really interact in an interesting way because it's sort of like the Kaveh's a heady cinematic universe. It all bleeds together. It's all one giant story. It is a film that, you know, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable at times, and I think there are lots of extremely ethically dubious things about it. But again, I think that some of the most interesting art is in reaction to one's personal shortcomings and failures and trying to not obfuscate it and just being upfront about it. However much of this is a myth, and, you know, is, he, is this a real memoir? Is this a fictional memoir? Kind of hard to tell. But um, I think we can, we have certainly have a lot to chew over with I Am a Sex Addict from 2005. Thank you very much. Yeah. And you guys really, I think, nailed the, uh, the vibe of your films in terms of, yeah, how they sort of fit in here with our theme. And, you know, I was thinking I most often interact with failure, of course, because uh, I teach a heist films class and, you know, failure is central uh, to the original cycle of heist films, of course, because they were produced under the code. And so the criminal couldn't get away with it, but you could at least make uh, the failure poetic, beautiful, tragic, you know, and that's a huge aspect uh, of the heist film. And, you know, thinking about these films then in terms of, of that, right, you know, the, these films aren't beautiful, films you know and i think you both addressed and well certainly shown darfur on a certain level it's a beautiful film but he goes to show you like a beautiful place being destroyed over the and subject over, matters and over, and over, over again, yeah you know? but it's like an opulent film yeah very beautiful yeah no yeah it is um but i think like what's so interesting is you know just by giving you guys the topic of failure like both of these films as you explained are so personal and one is a historical war epic that's 
kind of at a remove, a kind of journalistic, objective kind of distance, historical recreation. And another is like, yeah, the most subjective thing in the world, you know, Kaveh's world. It's certainly his story, Ryan, you know, no matter what, right? Um, but it's interesting that then, yes, failure, something that is so common uh, to human beings, you know, um, something that's so universal, so relatable, Um uh, yeah, I don't think it's a surprise that both of the films come from a very personal place, you know? Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, both of these filmmakers are <laughs> clearly witnesses, and these films are, are about witnessing. And yes, in the case of, of Kaveh, um, he is his own witness, I guess, and and he's asking us to, you know witness him, you know, it's like, witness me, right? I mean, that's, that's very clearly what's going on here, but he's also witnessing, he's, he's in a certain way, he's trying to, to witness, you know, he's trying to remove himself. He's using this process of mediation to witness his actions, actions, which are, as he says, at times, you know, beyond his sort of conscious understanding, they're, they're compulsive behaviors. He's trying to, to get to the, to the core of them. And, and this process is clearly uh, meant to be sort of therapeutic for him. I, I, and I said in my intro, I think that, you know, Schundorfer is, is, is using this in a similar way, you know, trying to make this kind of like therapeutic re-examination of history, um, but not just for himself, you know? Clearly he has opinions about the, the battle, about the conflict, about France's... Uh, France's failure, but you know, I, I think in the case of of Schundorfer, he's also trying to um, to to speak to larger things, you know, to get us all to reflect on history, on conflict, on opposition, and uh, perhaps maybe let go of of certain things. So yeah, I think yeah, it's like both of these dudes are 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 in it, you know, and I think with Schundorfer. Like as the film went on, the anger really started to 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 come out a little bit more to me that he sees this not as a failure of of the soldiers. You know, this isn't like a tactical failure. This was a strategic failure. This was a a a national failure. This was a failure of officers, of of idiots who can make uh, huge decisions that will send thousands and thousands of people to their death over presumably nothing in this case, as he put it at a certain certain point in the film. And the failure of colonialism in general sure. as well as just like a failed sort of ideology. I mean, it's that becomes increasingly clear, and especially the way he cross-cuts with Hanoi, which not the most exciting thing in the world necessarily <laughs> for most audiences, but he's trying to capture something about the people and the life uh, as well, you know, because they don't show the Viet Minh, you know, and it's very rooted, uh, and I think, you know, rightfully so, from a guy who was there, and he has, and the camera has, France's perspective, and it's one where you don't see why you're dying, uh, but you are. And, you know, this is not my my first Schundorfer, uh, but it certainly was not, I guess, what I expected in the sense that the films of his I've seen are very rough. 
in that sort of docudrama journalist camera on the shoulder new wave kind of thing and this is of course in the 90s you know he's been at it he's got funding and it's yeah a two three five uh cinemascope beauty (laughs) like it's so composed and he in the early work you know that's much like something like 317th platoon it's like you're with these guys running around these hills of course it's gonna be like camera on the shoulder but this big canvas big landscapes big sets all that stuff i mean to me it really felt like he was trying to prove that france could have an apocalypse now as well. Mm. And I don't mean to that in a disparaging way. It just seemed as if it was part of the film's ambition. Its visual style is so in your face in a way that I enjoyed. Uh, I, I had mixed feelings about the film, but I was like extremely taken in by the way it looked. And it did seem as if it was, you know, shooting for that feeling of an epic a painterly epic throughout and thinking about France's own heart of darkness as being Dien Bien Phu, it also really did feel like they were trying to make a point with how borderline gothic some of the imagery was at times. Sure. And I think it connects too with one of the central events of the film being this concert that's being held in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. And it's like, again, cross-cutting to this French violinist who has come to play with the you know South Vietnamese orchestra. And Schoendorfer is acutely aware of just just that the fact that like over here guys are being blown to bits and over here like french violinists are doing opera or whatever uh just that the french you know and there's a lot of comments about it in the film even and especially from vietnamese characters like mr vin uh the editor of the paper who's like hey i fucking love french culture but like, get the fuck out of our country. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't <clears throat> dislike the French. It's just, why are you here? Savez, Monsieur Simpson, notre lutte pour l'indépendance nationale n'est pas une résistance à la culture française. Pas plus qu'autrefois, notre lutte millénaire contre la Chine n'a impliqué un rejet du taoïsme ou du bouddhisme. J'aime Victor Hugo, les philosophes français, et j'aime aussi boire du vin rouge. Et pourtant. J'ai passé cinq ans dans les bails français. Ça, mes lecteurs s'en foutent, monsieur Vin. Bien, bien fou. Where is the fucking place? And so, like, that question pervades everything, the way the French are occupying, uh, and then also, yeah, back and forth with the battle. Yeah, I want, I want, as it relates to that, I want to backtrack a little bit because you got me thinking on this thread about just the idea of failure and these things being very personal and just thinking about that question. Why are you here? Why is this happening? Both of these films are interacting with their failures in a way that feels very human in the sense of whenever we recognize a failure of ours, what do we do? We play it back on our head over and over again. We see it from so many different angles and we think, well, what if we had done this or what could have actually led to this? Are there extenuating circumstances that were outside of my control, my own personal failures? And we try to rationalize it, and we try to think, well, if we can recreate it with such vivid detail, perhaps something new will be revealed to me that I'm just missing entirely. And that's something both of these films are doing. The battle is clearly being recreated so vividly from personal experience in Dien Bien Phu. And here's Kaveh, you know, 
returning and recreating all of these instances in his life, thinking that he's getting closer and closer to the truth of it, but at the same time, it's only perhaps reinforcing his interpretation of all the events. It's sort of this idea of like, you're so self-aware that it transcends self-awareness to the point where you're not (laughs) self-aware anymore. And that's sort of the beauty of it. But I think that both of these films in at their core essence when thinking about failure is sort of like that trauma reenactment. I mean, it was even thinking about when we were discussing last week about video games and using VR headsets for soldiers to re-engage with their traumas and explaining it, going over every detail, pouring over it until some new sense can be made from it or we can work it out of our system and we don't feel trapped by our failures anymore. Both of these films feel like an effort of purging that from the artists at the center of it. I was really struck by what the Polish legionnaire said in Dien Bien Phu. He said, In Poland, we have a dicton. La vie est comme un oignon. Plus on l'épluche, plus elle pue. <laughs> Et quand on a fini de l'éplucher, on a les yeux pleins de larmes. <laughs> Life like an onion. The more you remove the skin, the more it stinks, and at the finish, your eyes fill with tears. <laughs> and that's yeah. certainly, I am a sex addict. <laughs> that's like one, that's a capsule. That's literally a description, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's important as well, though, Ryan, off of what you've said, you know, this idea of, of you know, often with failures, playing it back and going, you know, if I'd only done this, or right, if I, if I zigged, when I zagged, you know, could it could it have changed? And and in history, that is like that is such again like an armchair historian's you know favorite game, the what ifs, you know, and all that kind of thing. I do want to say I think I give Schundorfer a lot of credit for going into this and and avoiding some of that, you know, where you 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 know you try to pinpoint well it was this particular moment, and if we had done this the whole thing could have changed, you know? And, and I think I would have liked the film a lot less if it had done that, sure. you know, like, Oh, if only France had won, like, no, I mean, he makes it so clear from the beginning that this was an inevitability. And, and even from the perspective that if it didn't happen at Dien Bien Phu, it was going to happen somewhere else, you know? Now, maybe that's because he has, done what you're supposed to do with history you're supposed to like learn from it you know and i think that's sort of why i i i um i really really um enjoyed his view of this you know in america we we have a really messy relationship with vietnam and its depictions in so many of our movies so much so that now i feel like movies in the last two decades certainly after 2001 that have been made have tried to almost like rehabilitate our involvement in the conflict you know um but but he's not doing that here you know this is a grand tragedy the stage is set for france's downfall and you know he basically doesn't waste time with 
those kinds of like minuscule choices and decisions in the battle, in the way the battle was fought. And I think that's why some people have criticized the film. They've, they've, they've criticized that cross cutting that Marsh was talking about to Hanoi being like, this is a movie of the battle of Dien Bien Phu. We want to see what took place in the battle. And from his perspective, he's just like, it wasn't a fucking battle. It was the end. It was the end of something that right. shouldn't have been taking place in the first in the first place, right? And it, it went on too goddamn long. You know, it wasn't glorious. It wasn't a fucking football game. It was people in the mud dying for months for nothing, you know? And I think that's that's something that I really appreciate. That he isn't sitting here going like, oh, if only, you know, if only those reinforcements had gotten there when they wanted them. Like, yeah, if only Ilian too had been reinforced by paratroopers quicker. It's like, yeah. get out of here. Yeah. I mean, it's made abundantly clear, you know, that these soldiers are, are struggling uh, with the fundamental question why we fight, you know, and just being like, it's already lost. Like one side has something to fight for and the other side doesn't. And the other side too is mostly foreigners, not French people fighting for the French, you know, and that's a huge part of the legions aspect in here. Who's dying at Dien Bien Phu? The African troops, mm -hmm. you know, like that's what we see. And that again is, is yeah, the ugly side of this colonial war where it's like other country, you know, other countries that have been colonized and then mobilized to be dropped uh, in a valley in Vietnam somewhere. Yeah. Like. Because because you're right. And and I, I think that he he isn't battering us with that point, but but he is he's laying it out there for us. That yeah. again, this was not simply France's defeat in Vietnam. This was the beginning of the end for France as a 20th century fucking empire, you know, like the, the experiences of the colonial troops, the Moroccans, the Algerians in this pointless fucking fight is what helped galvanize the Algerians specifically to say, let, why the fuck are the French bossing us around? They sent us halfway around the world to die for a conflict that didn't even involve us, you know? And, and I think that like here is for him like this is the center of like France's fucking implosion as a fucking superpower or whatever you want to put it, you know, however you want to put it. Yeah, and I would even almost say too that Cave doesn't spend a lot of time on what ifs. I was thinking even that both of these films in their treatment of failure, I agree with you that it's presented as an inevitability. There are at times almost that Cave's recreations feel as though his angle is he thinks that, well, all of this was inevitable. This is who I am. This is who they were. This is the only way this could have gone. Sure, he has strategies on how to get himself out of the path that he's, he's following, but he does sort of treat some of it as an inevitability. And I was thinking then about how in recreating the failure, one of the impulses of both of the films is, well, if I can do this as faithfully as I remember it, perhaps then we can see what the mistake was and where we can go from here. And that's perhaps, I think, Cave's goal with the film, especially with the fact that it is a frame narrative of I'm about to be married. Because when he addresses us at the beginning of the film. He's in his tuxedo. Hi, my name's Kaveh, and I'm about to be married. Um, this isn't my first time. I've actually been married twice before. Um, um, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be the last time. Um, 
how can I know that for sure? I can't, obviously, but um, my last two marriages fell apart because I used to have this sex addiction problem, and I don't really have that anymore. Uh, well, at least not in the way I used to. And it's not until the end that we realize this is literally happening moments before the wedding. Like, he's going to walk out of this room, the camera's going to follow him, and he's going to walk up to the altar, <laughs> which I thought was, like, a fantastic reveal. But I guess, you know, I, I struggle to think about where to start with I Am A Sex Addict, and I, I wanted to share just this funny anecdote where, in, in an effort to characterize Kaveh, of his other film in the bathtub of the world. And just when I was watching it with Molly, Molly really struggled <laughs> with Kaveh as I can imagine like many women probably watching his films would. And cause he's very upfront about his experiences. And so she, you know, she was like really getting fed up with this guy, but she was also hypnotized. She, she watched both films to the end. You know, she was nonetheless interested, but was just like, you know, good Lord. I mean, I myself, you know, you watch these movies and you're sighing throughout much of it. You're just like, Good grief, here we go. But it was amazing because we were watching In the Bathtub of the World. It's building and building, and Molly's like, God, just this is the, the purest narcissist I've ever seen in my life, which is similar to what you shared off air, Andy, about Hillary. Mm -hmm. She had that same reaction, like, oh, he's, he's just a narcissist. Oh, yeah. And I think everything clicked for me with Kaveh when in, in the Bathtub of the World, he's premiering his film, uh, the Vegas one, I can't remember the title, but it's this feature that came out in the 90s, and he's doing the Q&A with the audience, and there's a couple silent shots of Kaveh just on stage, like, sh hiding behind the light, putting his hands up, and then he excludes the question and has himself answering someone saying, do you say narcissism in, uh, do you mean that, like, pejoratively? <laughs> <laughs> and it was at that moment where I go, okay, I love this guy, <laughs> you know, because it is someone who acknowledged, like the fact that he included that bit as a punchline as, and as a joke as to how he can understand how he's depicting himself and how he probably appears to other people. Again, it's that circle of the snake eating its tail of self-reflexivity. He knows he's a narcissist. He still is a narcissist. But again, he's not trying to hide that from us. I think that's front and center. Yeah, and as like, you know, he's a very well-read man. And another very well-read man, one of my professors in undergrad who looked like Socrates and got a PhD from Berkeley, you know, he once said... Uh, there are degrees of narcissism, you know, he'd, he'd read a lot about human behavior. Uh, but yeah, Kaveh, of course, he's on the extreme end. I mean, it's pretty clear that like this guy uh, had turned his life into performance art. Mm -hmm. And he admits as, as much being influenced by the performance artists uh, back in the day. Right. And yeah, like, there's a very instructive uh, New York Times profile of him from 2019 about all the turmoil with the, sh the show uh, and, and his life, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of really good bits in there. Someone says in the piece, uh, he doesn't hang out. He, he works, like, as a means of hanging out. Mm. Like, his entire life at this point uh, has become completely mediated, you know? And, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but that's, like, part of why his marriage uh, again, you know, allegedly fell apart is, is the refusal of his to, yeah, distinguish, you know, his work from his life. Uh, and that's a conscious choice, you know, and that's one that he knows will make good cinema. Yes. Will it make a good life? 
that's you know that's not up for me to say but yeah he's had a lot of he's had a lot of turmoil uh and just that sort of like guiding principle um i mean yeah it's it is hypnotic like you can't look away yeah you know? i mean so much of bathtub is him you know cut it's cave camera in his face and he's like matt mandy and i had another fight She's really upset. You can hear her crying right now. And then, like, he'll pan over and you hear her crying. And then he just goes in the room and, like, puts the camera in his face. He's like, Mandy, Mandy, what is it, Mandy? And she's just, like, weeping. And she's like, Kave, enough. You're done. Like, stop doing this. And that's the thing. You watch You're like, this is not a good life. But this is great art. <laughs> There's something here. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I have to fully admit I was not nearly as taken with him as as you might be, Ryan. I mean, I agree with everything about narcissism and his self uh, awareness and also his his self deprecating humor. You know, he is making himself the punchline as as much as he can, which in its own way is a very narcissistic sort of behavior, oh, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, you know, Marsh, I read that exact same profile because I didn't know much about this guy. I'd seen his name pop up here or there, um, but this was my first like film of his. And like, yeah, you know, I, I struggled. I struggled with a lot of what you've alluded to, those kinds of like ethical choices. And again, that, that sort of, that way you've even described it in the other film, you know, of him just going and shoving his camera in the face of yeah. his crying wife. I mean, like, yes, in a sort of, you know, an age now, um, uh, and and he's doing a lot of this, like, before the explosion of of social media and selfie culture and, and you know, the, the narcissism that has really been on full display in our culture over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, he's certainly ahead of the game in that, oh, yeah. in that regard, you know, but yeah, you know, I just, I found him to be, uh, you know, in spite of his ability to be funny at times and yes, well-read and well-spoken, um, quite an insufferable person. And I'm not saying that, that you are, are making the case that he isn't, right. but you know, for me, <laughs> that was a thing. Like I wanted to, I wanted to punch him in the face and I know that that is what he he wants that reaction. Mm -hmm. You know, he's trying to get people like me to want to punch him in the face, which again shows you the 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 fathomless abyss of his narcissism. You know that it does have no end. That 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 self examination. That 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 life as performance art. You know that that at a certain point becomes so. Um, like transactional, like everything about this seems to be transactional. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I mean, that's the essence of his sex addiction, a sex addiction, right? It's, it's specifically a very transactional sexual relationship that he's exploring here, you know, and the idea of his compulsion being rooted in sex workers, particularly, you know, because he goes later, right. To a self, um, a sex addicts anonymous class. And, you know, you're hearing bits and pieces of the other people's addictions, but his seems to be the one that is like solely focused on, 
on sex workers, you know, and, and how he interacts with them. And I'm sure we're going to dive into it a little bit more, but like, I think the nature of how he explored that particular aspect was just really, really making me uncomfortable, you know, and not necessarily in a good way, I would say, you know? Yeah. I mean, listen, (laughs) I'm, I'm more in line with everything you're saying than I think you realize. I, I think that these two films of his I've seen are like pretty compelling and confrontational in a way that they feel somewhat unlike anything I have ever seen before. And when I say like, oh, I like this guy in terms of like, I like this art that he's creating, but I have all the same reservations. I don't want to punch this guy, but I like definitely, definitely do not want to be in the same room as Cave. <laughs> you know, I don't want to like be around this guy. Yeah. That seems like the worst day of my life if I got <laughs> locked in a room with that guy, really. But I do think he's like legitimately funny. And I think that's something that like helps me with these. Well, for me... I think he's a really good editor. Yes. Uh, and that carried me along, you know, because like, say what you want to say about it, but it's like 70 something minutes uh, and you're out, right? Like, or is it longer? No, than it's long. It's like 90 minutes? Bathtub yeah. is short. Bathtub's uh, like 80. Strike that. Yeah, this was like 96 um, minutes. I but see, look, say. it anyway, felt short for you. It's Yeah, it did feel short. It was, it was very fleet. You know, I was impressed. Uh, by his editing ability. I mean, he's no George Kuchar. Uh, right. But, you know, I am, like you, Ryan, I think I'm drawn to a certain extent to this kind of filmmaking because, you know, like ever since I got into Ross McElwee back in the day, um, I love that shit. Just like the real personal confessional side of documentary that when done well or done earnestly uh, can be really rewarding, like in McElwee. And and that's also, to me, what was fun about Cave's movie is uh, I don't I don't trust him the way I trust <laughs> Ross McElwee. Right. Like, yeah. oh, this soft-smoking Southern Harvard professor. Like, you know, this guy seems real chill. And then, like, this is another side of it, right? You know, that style of filmmaking. But um, it's very resourceful and it's very creative. And I'm always in the tank for for the low-budget aspect. And, you know, like, reading, again, that that New York Times profile was was very helpful for me. I, I, I wish I'd read it before yeah. I watched the movie, you know, because I think it would have prepared me for certain things. But, you know, I will give him credit. Like, in that profile, when they talked about his teaching, you know, his teaching and some of the thoughts that he had sounded, like, very insightful and very thoughtful and very helpful, you know? Like, I mean, specifically in... in in him discussing this idea of making the personal documentary, I think it's like really great advice he gave to his, his like first year students. He was like, Hey, these are films you can go out and make right now and you don't need funding and you can just make the movie. You be the star, you know, go out there, just start filming like life and, and people are filled with drama and comedy and tragedy and victory and failure. Like that I, I, I'm fully on board with, you know, it's like, I, I think with him, it's like, I'm, I'm on board with the theory behind everything he's doing, (laughs) but it's like his practice. it, It makes my hair like on the back of my neck stand up at times, you know? And again, that's not to say 
that it's it's an experience I had with the film that made me go like, oh, I wish I'd never watched the film. And I certainly would watch other stuff that he made, but I guess it's like, man, now for me, it's like it's like um, the essence of like hate watching. I guess at this point, it's like a dumpster fire, you know. And like, so from that perspective, yeah, I I see that, mm-hmm. you know. But it's funny. There's the it's it's nice to hear that his lessons are good because there's moments in bathtub where he's about to teach some of his first classes and he looks at the camera saying, "I don't know why I got this job. I." don't know anything about what I'm about to go teach. Um, I have the slightest idea of what I'm going to talk about, and I, I don't know anything about this. He's <laughs> like, and here I there's go. A, dude, there's an amazing bit, actually, where in that in that New Times piece where it says uh, he got in a little controversy in class because, you know, a student of color accused a white student of, of saying something racist or having something racist in their film. And Cave came to the white student's defense. And now the student, the student of color is making a documentary about the incident for, <laughs> for his class. And I thought, I thought, I, I thought I also read that. I thought I also read that he's also making I'm sure. a documentary about it, you know? <laughs> so, like, in that sense that I imagined, yeah, like, a, a, a room full of students who, like, some of them love him and some of them hate him, but they're all making personal, document- personal documentaries that overlap or something. Like, uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, well, it's definitely a philosophy, Right. And a way of interacting yeah. with your life, whether you treat that as performance art, which I do very much. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I had forgotten to mention that because that is definitely what he's doing. That's his angle. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. even he the, says it in the film. Right. You exactly. know, I mean, he has that section where he explains like I won. I got into performance art and that's it. And I saw marriage as part of the same capitalist system that had produced the genocide in Vietnam. But I was also influenced by performance art and by the idea of life itself as a kind of performance piece. And to me, the institution of marriage was so inherently absurd that I tried to subvert it by treating it as performance art. I do. Except that the joke, as it turned out, was on me. You know, life is performance. Yeah. And and he takes that to fucking heart. That's for sure. Right. And then I think there's also, and whether this sort of denies one responsibility for their actions or dampens the effect of decisions we make, there is also then kind of that angle of like, well, everything you do can be interpreted as art and you could even make art out of it. You know, that like that you're clear if you can do that. So I'm thinking about this incident with the student, right? And everyone has their diverging story of it. It's like, and then all of a sudden the incident no longer matters in reality but instead just the art that we all produced from it and i think there's something restorative and maybe healing about that if we can all like reinterpret what we're doing and make art out of it and see if we can understand ourselves and everyone else in a more positive light or vice versa you know but i do think that then especially in the case of i am a sex addict you do have to just really wonder where the performance art ends, where the real man is. Are there people actually being harmed in the process of making this movie? <laughs> you know, people being put in some extremely uncomfortable situations. Yeah. You know, you know what I was thinking of um, when I was watching it a little bit? I was thinking of Cassavetes when I was watching it, you know, because I think Cassavetes covers very similar grounds. You know, you could sort of argue that like, 
every movie Cassavetes made is about failure, right? Sure. Uh, uh, on a certain level. And, and certain like failures of the heart <laughs> and, and also a, a, a warts and all depiction of, of humanity, of, of human interaction. And again, things that Cassavetes has said very much mirror that, you know, like Cassavetes has said, all interactions in life are essentially improvisation. So why not? try to mirror that or, or elevate that in, in the films that we, we see and we make. But it's like, I, I think it's, for me now, teasing all this out, it's like, it's so clear when you look at Cassavetes and, and the, the, you know, the, the failed relationships in so many of his films that he depicts. It's so clear to me when I watch those films that, that these movies are being made by somebody who genuinely loves and knows how to love. And this is covering that same subject matter from somebody who I'm not convinced knows what, knows a fucking thing about love right? and, and doesn't know the meaning of the word love and, and clearly loves no one but himself. You know, I mean, when I watch Casavetes, I see love for the world in, in every dark corner you can find. And, and here I, I, I feel like it's the absolute like inverse of that on a certain level. You know, and again, maybe that's wow. just my perspective. But <laughs> that's like the harshest thing I've ever heard anybody say about another person. <laughs> but I, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. That's an intense, an intense read on on Cave. But I mean, again, though, like in that profile, you know, and I don't want to just make it about this profile that that Marsh and I read. But it's like when then you hear. You know, what's funny, again, when the movie ended, and I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here, this is very free jazz, but the movie kind of, it's fucking like that, it's structured that way, you know? Um, you know, it culminates, as you've already said, in his marriage to this woman, Mandy, and Hillary was, Hillary watched basically the final 10 minutes of the movie with me, and Hillary, my girlfriend, was like, there's no fucking way that they're still together, <laughs> and she was like, look it up right now. And they I did like 16 years They lasted something. a while. No, for sure. I mean, they had kids, but then when you read about how the relationship fell apart and then how he acted in the 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 relationship falling apart you know and as you've already alluded to like stuffing a camera in her face and invading her privacy like to me that and again this is me but that is not the way you treat someone that you supposedly love and have children with and have a marriage for fucking 16 years yes, with. Yes, of course. You, know? you respect their boundaries, you know? Yeah. You respect the most core boundaries, which, which to her were like, don't involve the fucking kids in this. And him being like, I'll figure out a way to involve the kids in my own way. You know, it's like, that is... That is like pathological on a certain level to me, you know? Yeah, no, without a doubt. And I think there's a really telling moment in the film that really upset me. And then because of how much it upset me, I got to thinking about like, wow, he included that. I'm glad it's in here. And that I didn't have to, you know, like it wasn't hidden for me. But it makes me wonder what else is hidden. But it's that moment where one of the actresses... (laughs) 
<laughs> when one of the actresses is like, I'm, I don't want to do the sex scene. Like, I don't want to pretend to give you a blowjob because so much of this movie is Kave getting fake blowjobs and then just screaming. Yeah. <laughs> Going Jerry Lewis. Yeah, he is. Yeah, that, oh my God. Yeah, uh, you're blowing my mind. I'm like losing my train of thought. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Those are Jerry Lewis blowjobs. Those are Jerry Lewis blowjobs. Holy shit, that's so good. But they, so there's one actress that doesn't want to do it, and Kaveh acknowledges it and recites that to the camera. Says, "Oh, and, and she didn't want to. She didn't want to do the scene." And then he cuts to footage of him interrogating the actress. Do you feel like it's it's like uh, domineering or something to women or? No, I just it's just it's very it's just something that I'm not comfortable with doing. On screen. Could you, could you please do it anyway? No. <laughs> and she <Yeah>. does. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is the worst, uh, worst imaginable, right? Just like the, the, where it's like not illegal, you know, just like this kind of behavior. Like, I can't stand this. And then I was like, God, but the fucker, I mean, he included it. You know, so he's acknowledging something. Sure, but that's also a way to obfuscate. Exactly, you know? exactly. I mean, that, that's all part of the narcissistic design. Exactly. It has built-in defenses and critiques. Right. Um, which, again, is why, yeah, it's like this impossible thing <laughs> to actually analyze, you know? Yeah, you know? I mean, like, and that's, that's I'm glad you brought up that that moment, because, yeah, that was really the moment for me when I when it was like a switch got flipped for me with him. You know, uh-huh. and again, like as you put it, Marsh, like it is, it's just like he's constantly doing fucking like Aikido, like he's always like flipping you, you know, he's flipping you, and 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 through his self deprecation, through his quote self awareness of being like, aren't I such a scumbag? It's like, yeah, you fucking are. You sure shit are a scumbag, man. Like, and and it's like that doesn't excuse it you know the fact that you turn it on on us the fact that you do reveal your own sort of bad behavior you know i mean like and he would agree with you right Right. exactly it's it's impossible (laughs) he's constantly throwing the uno uno reversal on your ass you know it's like the most frustrating person to play against you couldn't debate this guy you wouldn't win you wouldn't gain a fucking inch against him so it's it's on a certain level like pointless even for me to like point this shit out. Right. You know, it, it also, you know, it dawned on me that like the way he depicts, you know, his, his trips to the sex workers, uh, he acts like a film director, you know, like in those interactions, in those recreations, like it is really like a cautionary tale of like, don't go around acting like a film director uh, when people are just trying to be normal. Out there, I mean, he acknowledges you know? that too at one point because there's the woman who's like, he says, oh, she said she's seen my film. She knows who I am. And then that made me feel even worse because here I am playing on my celebrity in Italy or wherever he was at the time. And yeah, I don't want to, I, I just want to make it clear. I'm not claiming you're putting words in my mouth, but I want to I be clear that I wasn't treating him, including that moment as him like making an excuse. I think what you're saying is like, you can't win Uno against this guy. Like that is, that is what he's doing. And I think it's an interesting way of making a dynamic confessional film. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy, you know, and it, it brings to mind like his his shtick with, you know, always being a, as honest as possible. Right. Um, 
on the flip side, the Chinese gambler in <laughs> Dian Bian Fu, uh, who is just making a killing. Hong Kok, I think is yeah, his name. Yeah, Hong Kok. Uh, he is, he, he's got bets on the battles, the times, all this stuff. And people are like losing their shit. Like the, the betting market on the 55 days we see is, is thriving. And he has a hilarious bit when he's talking to Simpson, the journalist played by Donald Pleasance. And he says, Garde ta bouche comme une jarre scellée et tes pensées comme une forteresse. C'est un bon proverbe chinois pour vivre heureux et longtemps. Keep your lips sealed as jade and thought as a fortress. This is a good Chinese proverb to live a long, happy life. And I just thought, like, that's the opposite of, of Kaveh, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> the Chinese proverb says, like, shut your fucking mouth, you know? Yeah. like This guy should have been reading Confucius instead of fucking <laughs> Nietzsche, dude. That's what, that's what it all comes down yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, here, I have a question for either of you, depending if you had come across this in either of your research i was curious for for dnbn fu was the american journalist always a part of the design for it was that something that i don't know i don't want to say that it was like oh was that a necessity to get this film made like to have that kind of angle like as if that was a funder's request i I didn't get that vibe but i was curious because i felt very distant from the hanoi sequences and I thought the characterization yeah. was like really strange. Like I, I personally didn't walk away with a strong sense of who like anybody in that movie was, um, with the exception of the gambler, as you're describing him, Marsh. Like I got a clear idea of that guy, and then the guy that worked at the newspaper, right? Yeah. But yeah, was that always a part of Schoendofer's like design? Was to be following this American journalist? Was that something that got added later as he was working on it? Well, I think in general, like throughout the film. Um, Schundorfer is using archetypes mm-hmm. more than he is using specific people. And, and those archetypes are of course like rooted in specific characters. Um, there are real people that get referred to and, and mentioned, but it's very clear that, that what we're seeing I believe is a tapestry of people he met, Mm. you know, I also wrote down tapestry like five times (laughs) as the movie. I was like, this is a tapestry. Cause yeah. yeah, Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I kept thinking of, you know, for the Simpson character, right. He's just supposed to be this kind of just reporter character, this journalist. I mean, if there was somebody maybe that he came across that I, I know of perhaps the historian, the war reporter Bernard B. Fall, who wrote an amazing book, several amazing books on the French involvement in Indochina, who was a combat correspondent. Uh, he wrote a, a very famous book that I read years ago about the Battle of Dien Bien Phu called Hell in a Very Small Place. Um, so to me, I sort of see Simpson as this kind of facsimile, uh, Bernard B. Fall was an older guy. So, you know, he's probably folding several other journalists he met into this, this character, you know? Um, but, but he's not based off of any one particular person, you know, clearly I do believe though in your question that it's like, yeah, it certainly doesn't help if you're trying to make a big, you know, a, a, a big film like this and you want French financers to be like, and this can play in other markets too, what would help, you know, a, an actor that Americans or the UK or or whoever might recognize 
beyond all these French people that aren't huge stars in well, America. Well, the French loved Carpenter, so they would have also been stoked to see Donald Pleasant. Well, sure. I mean, you know, everybody loves Donald Pleasant. Yeah, listen, you know? I, I, mean, I have to admit, right? Like, I, you know, I would say my primary takeaway from the film was its beautiful visuals. That was the thing I enjoyed most. But I'd be lying if I said the second was uh, not getting to see Donald Pleasant speak uh, crazy French <laughs> throughout yeah. the duration of the film. And calling his rickshaw driver an old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah I yeah. mean we all know we we love Donald Pleasance I oh, don't love we. Donald Pleasance I adore the man and and so does Molly and we had a lot of fun uh with she watched like the first half of the movie and she made a really funny remark about how how Pleasance like really worked for it in this film like he was really busy cuz the last maybe 5 or 6 Donald Pleasance movies we've even seen all his scenes are just in one room, <laughs> mm. you know, because they're like that kind of movie. They get Donald Pleasance to get it all done in a day. He was on this set for quite a few days. It was like nice oh, getting yeah. to see Donald Pleasance act, get to show his chops, because I do think he's a great actor. I think he's very yeah. funny and shitty stuff, uh, and it's just always a pleasant presence. But I think he's also legitimately a great actor. And so getting to see him play something so different than what I'm used to, I imagine he probably had a pretty good time as well. Marlène, 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 toujours Marlène, moi beaucoup fatigué. J'ai dit Marlène, du rap. And he's I think, very invested yeah, here and, in this. And I think yeah. his character represents, you know, again, a sort of like, you know, a, a criticism of sorts by by Schundorfer. You know, if you think about it, it's it's very telling that this, you know expatriate British American citizen journalist who's covering the events is just this kind of like overgrown baby of a man who's basically just getting <laughs> yeah. pushed around in a stroller the whole time chewing on cigars oh you my know. god he has to be holding a cigar in that movie for longer than Jaime yeah. is in Curse of the Crime Woman he beats <laughs> totally. Jaime for like cigar chomping scenes without a doubt yeah. And again, as Marsh was mentioning, you know, it's like this cutting, right? This cutting that he's doing to, you know, moments of just, just blood and mud on the battlefield. And then, you know, who is sharing this story with the world? It's just this, this, yes, this, this dinosaur of colonial sort of entitlement, right? That's just getting pushed around by this 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 harried old Vietnamese man that he yeah is just swearing at the whole time, but also seems to have a, a yeah, bit of tight. affection for yeah. right. But I think like that's the relationship at the core of like his colonial critique. It's like summed up in this interaction. You know, it's these Westerners, these like fat old Westerners getting pushed around, going, "Damn, it's hot out here today, isn't it?" You know, and it's like, yeah. Meanwhile, what is what is the cost? of this guy getting like getting able to like traipse around wherever the hell he wants without a fucking care in the world. It's thousands of people blowing themselves to pieces out in the middle of the jungle. You know, I, I so I think that like, you know, again, I, from what I saw that the people who have critiqued this film or, or not, not really connected with it have like criticized that aspect of being like, you know, whenever there's a moment of tension on the battlefield, we cut to Donald Pleasance like in a stroller or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it's amazing. like that's by design, you know? And I think it's it's for me, it's integral to what he's doing. He is not trying to make a a 
a war movie that's filled with spectacle. Certainly not like action spectacle. There's certainly combat and we see it, but I think it's what I was just like really blown away by and what I really appreciated as as you know, I'm sure you know, people who've listened to the pod by now know like I've seen hundreds of war movies. You know, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of war movies. And what I really liked about Schundorfer's approach to this is that almost all the battle sequences that we do see are happening in these incredible, extreme long shots where there's something in the foreground, but more often than not, the the real, like, you know, action spectacle, the explosions, the gunfire, it's all happening at very long distances and long ranges. And again, this is from the perspective of someone who's been to war and specifically been in this conflict. And, you know, that's the thing. It's like, he's like, this is what combat's like. You don't see who or what you're often shooting at. You're shooting at positions. You're shooting at that fucking hill over there. And there's so many amazing shots of just soldiers sort of like sitting in a muddy trench. And we're just seeing explosions on a hill that's that's looks almost like a mile away from I know. Us, I was you know? thinking about how so many of those wide shots... It felt like a Brissanian fireworks show, right? Because I don't want to say like, oh, it's like fireworks, right? Like then you think like Michael Bay or something. No, this is like these static images at times, gorgeously composed. And then it's just bits of pyrotechnics isolated going off. And it's functioning more as light and texture. And you're just kind of sitting and staring at it. And it kind of comes in. It almost feels calm. Again, I, I, I don't really know how to it feels weird describing it as Brissanian, these battle sequences, mm-hmm. but there's this stasis to it. What about, what about it? Sukhravian? Because it does kind of feel like that one Sukhrav documentary we watched about chilling at the Afghan war border. It does. Where there's like a lot of meandering tracking shots and like time yeah. is an element. Yeah. And I kept thinking about that, Andy, of like from his perspective of someone who was there, it's not fast cut. Because it's about like this total environment where all this stuff is happening and just some of those, yeah, tracking shots and reveals of just like hills being blown up. But I think it's like a crucial part of his like his whole distancing effect. He, as a guy who survived something like this, he he does not want to get people worked up emotionally in a conventional Saving Private Ryan sense. And we get battles that are de-emphasized or played out almost abstractly. Uh, Meanwhile, back to Pleasance, like to me, he's the sort of chorus, you know, him and the AFP guy, these journalists who are sending this news out to the world. Again, it is this archetypal thing. And he is there to bear witness to, like you said, Andy, the, the end or downfall of a certain kind of lifestyle, a certain life, an empire perhaps. Right. Um, and that's really his function. Yeah. It's not like, Oh, we're rooting for this guy to get the story or whatever. No, he's just there to look around yeah. At this way of life that is dying, you know, and then to make like wise cracks to his French newspaper pal. Yeah. You know? I like that you mentioned that there's this distancing effect with the battles because 
one of the reasons I found that so successful was because I audibly gasped when all of a sudden it was as if it was Mission Impossible Fallout and there's a cameraman that skydives <laughs> and like has his parachute dude. deployed. Yeah. Again, this film has so much stasis in the battle and it's very painterly. And then all of a sudden we're in a plane with all of these soldiers parachuting down and then the camera jumps out of the plane <laughs> i like to think that he did it you know he's probably like 70 when he yeah. made this or whatever i like to imagine like i'll jump one last time yeah. with my bolex well, or whatever my bell and owl well it is important to point out that the, the, that probably wasn't in that particular in that particular shot the sort of like pov of the the yeah. cameraman jumping out the plane is archival well no 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 i mean like that that was for this movie but like um his son plays him yes. as the cameraman who does parachute into the battle. And I don't think he had his son strapped sure. up with a camera and pushed <laughs> him out of a plane. But, Dude. but like, I mean, that's an experience that, that he did like go through yeah. and he cast his son who was also, I don't know if you noticed this, the editor yes. of the film. Oh, Ludwig wow. Sch yeah. I was yeah. loving that. There was another of his family in the credits and, you know, I'm a big Chabral fan and he used to put his whole family in the production mm -hmm. crews of his movies. Yeah. Uh, Again, tying back to this, like this personal connection to the battle that yeah. he has his son, you know, playing, playing him. him, you know, and his and, big red one moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. But you know, again, I think it's like, it's key to also understanding the battle and the horror of this particular battle that he's trying to showcase us was the French experience, which again, goes back to the essence of their failure, which was like this really shitty plan, this really bad plan where they chose the site in a, in, a, in a place where it was just impossible to defend. And so they scattered French units. Essentially, the area was a big valley, or as the Vietnamese, the great Vietnamese general, one of the greatest generals in history, Vo Win Jap, uh, as he described it, it was a rice bowl with the French at the bottom of the bowl. And, and all the French could do is try to cling on to several hills that are sort of around this area. And what the French soldiers went through was literally like sitting on a hill and watching as one by one the Vietnamese overran the, the surrounding positions. And so there was this sense of building impending doom for the defenders. They didn't all fall at once, but you had to just sit there for months going, ah shit, there goes Ariane, ah shit. There goes, you get, ah, shit, we're fucking next, you know? And you, I, I think that's what made, for me, those, again, those, like, long shots, which had a distancing effect, that much more, like, unsettling of guys just sitting there being like, wow, I'm so glad I'm on this hill and not on that hill. But then you have the realization that means my hill's fucking next, you know? Like, I'm about to go through what those guys are going through. You know, and and he showcases that that sort of like that building of disaster from one stage of the battle to the next so so powerfully in those in those long shots. See, I would say you're you're also describing the effect of Cave riding on the chalkboard throughout I am a I'm a sex addict in the sense of really building the tension and being afraid of, of what's coming next. 
that was a quality I, I really did like about the film, um, and it, I thought was a good source of comedy and, and editing, was when he was going through his list of all the different ways he tried to, to handle his sex addiction. Uh, he'll, it cuts to a chalkboard, and he writes the number down. And I wrote them all down just because they made me laugh, which was, number one, his effort was to masturbate. Um, and I think at one point in the, in the film, he says he's like, doesn't he say he's late because he had a masturbatory episode? Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a caveism. Yeah. Then his uh, number two was to have a dialogue about it. Maybe what he needed to do was just confront it, talk to his partner about it, and that doesn't work. Number three was just full-on honesty, you know, detailing it in excruciating detail to the uh, detriment of everyone who had has a chance to, to listen to him. For his dishonesty, it's a little self-explanatory as to why <laughs> that, that was a failed effort. Then there's just do it. And then, of course, number six, one last time. Uh, that that was a good one. And then, of course, number seven, just do it enough. You know, like maybe just, just do it enough and work through it. And then number eight, finally, was go all the way. Um, oh, and number nine, get a better girlfriend. And number 10, do it together. Life's like an onion. <laughs> it's like an onion. Yeah. It's like an onion. And uh, each layer a little stinkier than the last for sure. I think each of those came at like a very good punctuation mark when you were getting really fatigued with what you were stuck with to the point where now it was escalating even further when you would have a new idea of how to handle this situation and how it would inevitably be a failure. So I did enjoy like that structure element of it. It did kind of date the film in certain respects. The bathtub of the world feels very timeless besides the fact that it's shot on DV. I was surprised watching I am a sex addict second how much things like this, like the chalkboard thing and the music especially, Ugh. really made it feel like a 2005 IFC film, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This film felt like more of a conventional, like this was produced by the Weinsteins than Bathtub, which is just like straight cave. He's shooting something, cutting it himself. This one does seem to like have qualities that feel very much of its era. Yeah, and it's composed, too. I mean, there's a lot of two shots, a lot of tripod. Like, yeah, it does have, like, you know, a sort of quirky indiness of the yeah. mid-2000s to it, which, yeah, is, like, obviously absent from the more diary mode uh, films that he's done. Um, but it's interesting, like, also thinking about failure, I guess, in the context of his career, Um this was, of course, his most has been his most successful film. Yes. It got picked up by IFC and grossed, I think, one hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollars all told. Uh, but by and large, his career itself is is marked by failure, you know. And that's also one of the things, you know, the aspects we haven't really talked about is the film is also like a retrospective of his of his career uh, and life, yeah. you know, in a certain way. So we get to also like revel in the frustrations yeah of you know this guy that doesn't fit in anywhere or or any place you know whether that's uh, with other people or in the film industry uh he's he's a total misfit you know and it's it's probably not fair to do this you know but but again if you want to then compare it to the experiences of our other filmmaker and and what he did with his life <laughs> you know i mean this poor fucking guy i mean he 
volunteered to be dropped into this battle when everyone was saying, this is a one-way ticket to hell, man. Like, no one's coming back. And he said, I'm going. Send me there. And he specifically said, I felt compelled to bear witness, to bear witness to the suffering, to bear witness perhaps to the fall, the fall of France. This, his, Maybe he felt the historical you know, magnitude of this moment. But yeah, I mean, he goes to to hell and he's captured and spends, you know, uh, years in imprisonment. He survived a, a march to a prison camp that ultimately would kill something like 70, 75% of those captured in this battle. And then, you know, what does he do? He goes on to, to make a career of trying to to teach people about these things, the folly, the, the folly of colonialism, the the folly of, of these pointless fucking wars, you know, the horrors of combat and that sort of thing. And it's like, man, on the flip side, again, like I said, it's not fair, but boy, what is Cave? <laughs> you know what? I, I mean, he's had a pretty charmed fucking life by all, by all comparisons. And he is just, just, you know, he can't help. He's got but... intellectual problems. Yeah. You know? Oh, my God. Intellectuals yeah. problems. It is funny to read, like, old coverage of him where he's uh, compared flatteringly to Woody Allen a bunch, which yeah. is kind of a, <laughs> kind, uh, of yeah. a kind of a funny thing. But, yeah, Yikes. an inevitable comparison when you're being, I suppose, like, frank about sex in a, in a certain way. Yeah. But, you know, Ryan, I want to put you in the hot seat because... You have, uh, I think, personal experience with both films. Uh, number one, you've been to Vietnam. And number two, uh, you worked on uh, an award-winning hybrid documentary that uh, was very uncomfortable um, in a certain respect, you know? Yeah. Um, you want to you talk about that in the hot seat? It, sure. Well, I guess, first off, I was thinking it was really interesting just the way Hanoi is captured in the film. It's really gorgeous, and he shoots the city really well, but I was so struck by the fact that there's not a scooter in sight, you know, because now it's every inch of every road in Hanoi is, like, people on scooters carrying things, like, well above, like, the weight capacity of a scooter. And, of course, there, there were in the 90s as well, so it's I imagine that was, like, probably logistically extremely difficult. Most of that stuff's at night, I would say, but I was just thinking about all the streets he probably had to close down in order to get those shots <laughs> of Donald Pleasance riding around in his it stroller. Around in a pram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was funny. The I worked on this film called Acts of Love, where I was the cinematographer, and I really, really saw a lot of interesting parallels with my like personal experience and what I imagine elements of the creative process was for something like I am a sex addict. But I did want to like say up front that I, I had noted that to you, Marsh. I'm like, oh my God, this is giving me flashbacks to, to Acts of Love. Um, except I think the director of Acts of Love, Isidore Bethel, is legitimately a great person like a good man <laughs> and someone i admire and and really cherish the the friendship i have with him but yeah his film is also you know it's very easy to accuse all of Isidore's work as being extremely narcissistic and i i remember like one of my favorite like elements of the film that doesn't even end up in it is there was supposed to be this whole plot line with his mother and his mother didn't want to be in the film and she also accuses Isidore of being like really narcissistic so izzy's idea was okay let's cast someone to play my mother 
and of course. He, and he hosts auditions where his mother is the person, you know, deciding who will play her in the film. And I had to shoot this whole scene without showing his mother's face. That was the rule. And so it was like an interesting challenge, but it was something that did evolve constantly. And throughout the whole process, every subject of the film, because the, 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 the core idea of Acts of Love was that Isidore was meeting people on like Grinder, and then he would explain what the what he was doing his project he was going to like have a night with them have a conversation with them interview them and then write a fiction scene based off their experience together and then go back and film that and just see what happens and so of course it was a project that was constantly evolving everyone in the film was at arms against Isidore because of his style so much of the film ends up being about the central figures in the film being like, Isidore, we think your project's a failure. We think you're a failure. We think this is all unethical. We think the directions you're taking this are extremely narcissistic. And so then we had, you know, hundreds of hours of footage, right? And I didn't even shoot the majority of it. A lot of what's in the film is stuff I shot. But yeah, like, it's interesting thinking about that in relation to I Am a Sex Addict because... I think Acts of Love itself is a feat of editing based off my experience on the set and feeling the the revolt of everyone that was involved with the film, myself included. I was getting pissed off. I had a lot of really like <laughs> bad nights on that film. Um, and Isidore was always such a great listener, and we would make changes and we would change our style. But I can tell you one thing, you know, he 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 never treated anyone on that film the way that <laughs> that we see Cave treat people uh, in this film. But at the same time, there is still that like we'll film it all, never turn the camera off. You know, right. anything is part of it, right? It is all a performance ultimately. So yeah, people check out Acts of Love. I think yeah, <laughs> it's a cool. It's a film. good movie. Yeah. yeah, I like it a lot. And Sherman's in there. <laughs> he is. Yeah, we both have cameos. Our little baby faces as we're like setting up lights. <laughs> Everything is a film, yeah. my man. Yeah, it is. You it got is. caught in the web, dude. <laughs> but it's funny too because one way I would describe Cave uh, too is like the ultimate art school guy. You know, like the real art school guy. I was thinking School of the Art Institute in Chicago, you know. I, everyone I've met there, and I mean this affectionately, but they're like cave, you know, where you never really know what you're, <laughs> what you're dealing with. It's its own beast. It's its own way of life, you know, its own type of self-reflexivity. Yeah, his movie is really a cautionary tale about too much grad school, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, in a sense, I was thinking that that is his whole problem, of course, the whole time, because he justifies like his, his all like anyone, you know, but he justifies everything right through philosophy uh, that he's into or whatever was into. Uh, and that's his whole like. Why don't we just make this an open marriage yeah, or whatever? Yeah, like, yeah. Because of philosophy. You yeah. know, I don't believe in in, in whatever. And we that's, have to transcend you know. ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, when I mean, he <laughs> talks about his own personal beliefs and he says he thought of marriage as equal to the Vietnamese genocide, you know, and a, a funny little yeah. link between the films. But like, yeah, that's the kind of stuff this guy says, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, yeah. 
the Kabe's film is is a cautionary tale about too much school, too much education, and and really what I think Schundorfer and and others have made the case about in relation to Vietnam is you know the the epic tragedy of the Vietnamese conflict, both the French and American involvement was not enough education, not enough school, people who underestimated Vietnam's willingness to fight as long and hard as they possibly could. And again, very specifically, America not learning from the French mistakes, you know? I mean, there are people who have often said, you know, if fucking Kennedy or Johnson or Nixon had spent one quiet weekend reading Bernard B. Fall's book about the French experience in, in, in Vietnam, they would have gotten us the hell out of their way sooner than they fucking did. You know, so yeah, one is a cautionary tale about too much history and and the other about not enough history. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there's also like the film doesn't engage with it like too much, but there is something in terms of Kaveh being a product of his time and his upbringing, you know, because it's both like thinking about when Kaveh was born and his generation. And then also the fact that he's the son of Iranian immigrants who then had his parents' marriage fell apart because his father cheated on his mother and his mother forced Kaveh to confront his father <laughs> with his mistress, right? And their marriage fell apart. Kaveh remained very close to his father as evidence in his films, but it's, you know, the film does detail very much Kaveh's own mommy troubles, <laughs> you know? Like he's, he visits psychiatrists, they make him reenact all sorts of silly things, you know? And I think there's something there too about elements of his own sexuality being repressed this film is both about the dangers of being too much of an intellectual reading too much and then also letting loose once you've discovered what has been repressing you what you interpret has been repressing you when he falls prey to free love things get a little out of control you know for the rest of his life There's a few casualties along the way. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Life like an onion. I can just keep thinking of that Polish guy. <laughs> yeah, you know? dude. I love the Polish legionnaire. Yeah. With his Vietnamese wife and baby. Yeah. Life like an onion. Yeah. God damn, dude. And there he died in the mud and the blood of Dien Bien Phu. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I would say, too, is just, again, like looking back on Dien Bien Phu as a film, right? And I, I kind of said this in my introduction, and we've sort of like brought it up at at, at points. But, but man, when I watched this, I, I really was like, this is... And, and Schundorfer like was a director, and he was a, a, an accomplished director at that. But like this movie to me was just like such a, a cinematographer's film. And I really like... Um, I really looked at so many of the images from this movie and, and just, they, they have really, they're, they're some of the, the, the most compelling images I think I've seen in a war film. And you could spend so much time talking about each individual, you know, shot that you thought was just like, Whoa, what a fucking perfect shot because there were so many of them in this film. But I think that the choice that, that, to me, like sort of culminated the entire film that I thought was just such a powerful way to conclude this failure was like at the very end of this, this, you know, this descent into hell, this nightmarish battle, because as we alluded to, you know, 
you do not see the the Viet Minh at all, really, during the battle. I mean, at, at a few points, you see them in silhouette. But, like, as we hit the day when they announce, like, that's it, like, it's over, the French have said, just everybody destroy your weapons, like, we're done, you know? And, and they call a ceasefire. Rips out his film. Yeah, <clears throat> which he did do. You know, Schoendorfer destroyed a ton of his, his own film, and, and you see that take place in, in this movie. Uh, we then, like, get this, this extreme long shot of the hills again, and suddenly... The hills like, are alive! Just thousands of Vietnamese soldiers just, just rise up out of the trenches, seemingly out of the earth itself, and start streaming down the hill towards the French positions in, in the open, you know, daylight, which they have not done previously, and they form... Like they, they start streaming from all these different sort of like tributaries and start to create this massive like human river like washing over the French positions and and again you know looking back at the history of the Vietnamese conflict like that shot particularly particularly for me like summed up the entire the entire failure the entire failure of the West certainly but ultimately right the in war, one side's failure is another's victory. Yep. And here we see that in this moment, you know, the failure of the West as the Vietnamese army, and quite quite literally the Vietnamese army, because he had the 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 direct involvement of uh, the army of Vietnam as extras in this film, just in their 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 victorious sort of human river washing over the, the French it was incredible. That was a very stirring moment. I mean, obviously, like, just love seeing the French get wrecked, but, like, no, I was I was moved by it. But it also just, you, you talking made me think of, like, uh, one of my favorite things in the whole movie is during one of the battle scenes, there's just, like, uh, you know, these Vietnamese peasants carrying water to the Vietnamese troops, and, like, there's, like, bombs going off, and just, like, again, a whole scene that's just these people carrying these buckets in this, like, moon landscape. I don't know, just, again, images that, that I'll remember. Yeah. You know, very, very striking. I mean, it's a film that really knows what to do with weather and, yeah. like, how to shoot weather. So much of the visual texture of the film comes from the rain, the way the moon is shining on the landscape. So much of it relates all back to that like just the atmosphere that's created from it is that's that was my big takeaway from it too it, it struck me while watching the the drummer crab like i think what um like how i would best sort of define schundorfer's work the work that i've seen now in in several of his films and and i in my letterbox of the drummer crab you know i i i wrote you know he, he's composing like prose poems. And I think for me, that's the best way that I can sort of sum up his approach now that I've seen over several films, because, you know, he's not so rooted in the imagery to the point of it being this sort of like lyric poetry or, or very, you know, something like Malik would do with his battle sequences in the Thin Red Line. Like Schundorfer's movies are, are still very they're talky and and they have a journalistic approach to them. You know, there's information, there's dates, there's numbers, 
there's a lot going on. He's there. also doing the voiceover. He's doing the voiceover. I mean, he said this is a docudrama. That's the way he described this movie. And and yet, in spite of even you know going back to something like we've all seen, right, the the three seventeenth platoon, uh, which has you know Raul Coutard doing cinematography, cinematography himself, a, a combat cameraman, right. and and a sort of like immediacy of boots on the ground and and really like the the minutia of just this entire like patrol there are incredible images that they capture in that handheld raw you know documentary style that they're going for there so so i think that like schundorfer is like yes this guy that's interested in like history and humans and events and yet he's still like with his photographer's eye, you know, able to just create such stirring moments of beauty that make you sort of like just stop and marvel. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think he's an incredible filmmaker. Well, these Shit. were our epic fails, Marsh. You know, when uh, when this uh, this idea comes to mind, what films pop in there for you? Sure. Well. Uh... Got to go with an obvious one, but a but a goodie. Uh, the Killing, Stanley Kubrick. You know, it is the most wicked, uh, epic fail movie ever. You know, these guys got a pretty good plan, but boy, they they fuck it up big time. And random chance plays a role uh, as well, as we see when the poodle runs across the tarmac at the end. But, you know, Kubrick got it. He got that it was, you know, all about failure and the poetry of failure. Um, so definitely that. And I was thinking, uh, I mean, you know, it was hard not to say, like, you know, uh, one of the many great, like, failures of the 60s movies <laughs> that exist, you know, uh, from Chris Marker to Jacques Rivette to Cutter's Way to whatever. But then I was thinking, you know what? Four Lions has got to be one of the great failure <laughs> failure movies of our of our era in sure. terms of uh, failed jihad. And uh, nobody nobody did it like Chris Morris, you know. I thought about picking that for this week, you know, but I was like, ah, we've all seen it. We all love it, you know. Let's yeah. uh, let's see when we haven't pop off in the it. chicken hut or whatever. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's a great so, one. So yeah, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of failure on the gauntlet too. I was I started making mm. a list of of films that I would like, you know, qualify as sort of like being about a failure of some kind, and it got too long. Oh, I yeah. just like scrapped. Uh, the segment, you know. Hey, so. you know, it's, it's you know, drama comes out of failure, you know? There's not a lot of drama in just winning, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, George Kuchar never really made it to any of those tornadoes, did he? <laughs> no, he didn't, dude. You yeah. know, I mean, throw in the lusty men, throw in the seven-man army, throw in out of the blue, you know, you could go on and up. Wow. Yeah, that's true. It's probably harder to find a gauntlet film that's not about failure. That's right. <laughs> the wonderful ice cream suit. Yeah. You know. Boom, yeah, just em. the optimism. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, most valuable primate, you know. Yeah. Oh, Purely yeah. good vibes. MVP2. That's nothing you gotta about Gotta get winning. back to those MVP2 vibes. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, guys. I uh, was really happy to see uh, another Sch Schoendorfer film. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I, I have known who Cave was, but I sort of regarded him as like New York's problem, basically, <laughs> or like, like someone else's problem. You know, I knew he was sort of controversial or whatever, but no, I think, yeah, you know, I, I have reservations, but I'm, I'm Cave curious now and yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to, going to check out some more. So yeah, watch uh, in the bathtub of the world for what it's worth. I think it's a much better film and I think you'll love it as a feat of editing. It's really, <laughs> it's sure. really something. Yeah. So, you know, in spite of all this failure, you know, epic and, and small, uh, Hey, this week on the gauntlet, not a failure at all. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> well, Andy, I guess there's the chance of, of <laughs> there's always still the chance of failure. You never know. And so let's make sure we succeed next week. Andy, what is the what's the topic for next week? Um, well, uh, you both know this. Uh, uh, our, our listeners may not know this, but I had a very interesting experience uh, recently, um, you know, after the the death uh, of uh, the great director and, and friend of the pod, William Friedkin, uh, I was invited to eulogize him, to take part in a eulogy on the news here yeah. in <laughs> Chicago. And it was my my first time on on the live news talking about great Chicago director William Friedkin. And I, I, I had a I had a great time. It was a really fun experience but it was also slightly bizarre you know because i got to kind of peek behind the scenes a little bit of of the news and and how it it unfolds and how it happens so it's kind of got me thinking that it's kind of a fun topic and i think there's been a lot of great movies you know narrative documentary experimental about broadcast news so uh, next week, let's let's dive in. Let's take a look at movies about the news on TV, broadcast news, the newsroom, <laughs> top stories on the gauntlet. <laughs> Seven p.m. <laughs> As always, you can find us, listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, other various places, and you can send us an email at Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. One, two, three. Well, my baby love, love, loves me now Even more than I prayed for my baby love, love, loves me now Even more than I pray I pray, I ask But I didn't expect this My baby love, love, loves me now Even more than I prayed for Even more than I prayed Well, she loves me, she does but I had to be ready for it She loves, she does But I had to be ready and afraid I asked and I was blessed 
my baby Love, love, loves me now Even more than I prayed for Even more than I prayed moins de 40 ans après la bataille de Dien Bien Phu au Vietnam, au Tonkin, comme nous disions autrefois, avec les Vietnamiens, l'armée du Vietnam. Ce fut une expérience bouleversante, pour eux comme pour nous. Refermant une page douloureuse de notre histoire, elle n'a de sens que si elle contribue à renouer des liens avec ce Vietnam que nous aimons, que j'aime. La la la, my baby, love, love, loves me now, even more than I prayed for, even more than I prayed.